Today we are going to delve into three specific heads of power under the constitutional division of powers. Specifically, we're going to look in depth at the property and civil rights power provided to the provinces under section 9213. We are going to look at the federal power over criminal law provided under section 9127 and the federal power over trade and commerce provided under section 91.2 of the Constitution Act 1867. Before we do that though, I want to take a minute to review the major concepts that we talked about in the first lecture on the division of powers. Those are validity, the pith and substance analysis, operability, the paramountcy analysis, and applicability, the interjurisdictional immunity analysis. So remember that the question in a validity analysis is whether a law is within the jurisdiction of the enacting legislature. Does the federal government have the legislative jurisdiction provided by the Constitution to pass this law? Does the provincial legislature have the legislative jurisdiction to pass this law? The effect of a finding that the enacting legislature did not have the jurisdiction is that the law will be declared invalid, struck down, declared of no force and effect. The approach the courts take to answer that question is described as the pith and substance analysis, and it requires that you first characterize a law and then classify that law. When you're characterizing the law, you want to describe what is its main thrust, what is its dominant purpose. And in so doing, you look at both the purpose of the law as revealed in the law itself, as well as as revealed through extrinsic evidence like the debates of parliament called Hansard. And then you look at its effect, both its direct legal effect, what does this law prohibit or mandate or allow, and also its practical effects, what will happen if we apply this law in practice. That is how you characterize a law you come out with an articulation of the pith and substance, a description of the pith and substance of the law, and then you decide if the law so characterized falls within a head of power assigned to the enacting legislature. Characterize the law and then classify it by seeing if it falls within a head of power assigned to the enacting legislature. When you are deciding if a law falls within a head of power assigned to the enacting legislature, you need to consider what is the scope of authority provided by that head of power, the various heads of power. And this requires that you look at sections 91 and 92 holistically to make sure you interpret the division of powers in a sensible way and in a way that maintains the Federalist balance that respects the federalism principle. So that's the pith and substance doctrine in its essence. Characterize the law, classify the law. And if you find that a law is outside of the jurisdiction of the enacting legislature, that law will be declared invalid. The next thing we talked about is operability. And we talked about the paramountcy doctrine. And this is the idea that if there is a conflict between federal and provincial law, the federal law will be operable and the provincial law will be inoperable to the extent of the conflict. 
And the important difference between operability and validity is that the provincial law doesn't get struck down for conflicting with the federal law. Rather, it is merely inoperable to the extent of the conflict. And if the federal law were to be changed or repealed, then the provincial law would operate in its entirety. And if we remember the two situations where you'll have a conflict sufficient to trigger the doctrine of paramountcy are when it is impossible to comply with both the federal and provincial law and when compliance with the provincial law would frustrate the federal purpose of the legislation. Finally, then, we have applicability, interjurisdictional immunity. And this is the idea that you ought not to be able to do indirectly through generally worded legislation what you couldn't do directly through specifically worded legislation. You can't specifically say there shall be no lighthouses because lighthouses are a federal matter if you're the provincial government. So you also can't apply generally worded legislation in a way that would render lighthouses unlawful, even if that legislation in its general application is fine. And if you remember, the doctrine of interjurisdictional immunity posits that each head of power has a minimal, unassailable core, and generally worded legislation can't apply in a way that would infringe jurisdiction over that core. You can remember that it's not an idea the Supreme Court of Canada favors though they recognize that it is a valid part of the federalism framework, a necessary part. But the Supreme Court of Canada encourages courts to resolve federalism, division of powers problems, in other ways before resorting to interjurisdictional immunity. Finally, you want to remember that in theory, the doctrine is reciprocal. That is, you can assert interjurisdictional immunity to render a federal law inapplicable to preserve the core of a provincial head of power. But you should remember that in practice, the doctrine has exclusively or almost exclusively worked to benefit the federal government. And that provides an opportunity for a transition into the materials for today because as I explained, my view is that the reason that interjurisdictional immunity has operated to benefit the federal government is because the scheme of the constitutional division of powers is such that federal powers are specific exceptions to the general rule that power will accrue to the provincial legislatures. In practice, the residual powers in Canada go to the provinces. You have to find a reason for something to be federal. If it is not, it will be a provincial power. As a result, these federal powers are at risk of being swallowed up by the broad residual provincial power. That's the reason for this interjurisdictional immunity operating to protect a core of each federal power. As we'll see, this can be explained most easily by the breadth through which 
the provincial power over property and civil rights, section 9213, has been interpreted to possess. Property and civil rights encompasses most legislation that deals with business or day-to-day -day life in Canada. Most businesses are regulated provincially under laws passed pursuant to that property and civil rights power. Certainly, businesses like banks would be regulated provincially if they were not specifically given to the federal government under Section 91. As a result, there's generally worded legislation that applies to all businesses in a province and can apply to banks. However, if that generally worded legislation would impair federal jurisdiction over banks, make it so that the federal government can no longer effectively exercise its jurisdiction over banks, that legislation would have to be read down and read as inapplicable to the banks. So we saw the Canadian Western Bank case where there was an attempt to do that in relation to legislation dealing with insurance regulation. Banks were selling insurance. And the court said, well, look, you're a bank. You're engaging in a business that's outside of the fundamental core of banking. In such a scenario, you are going to be subject to provincial legislation. It's not enough simply to say that you're a bank and then say that everything you do must be regulated only federally. However, if provincial law were to get at the core, the essence of what a bank is and does, if it were to, for example, cap the interest rates that could be paid by banks or limit the ability of a bank to take on large deposits, these types of regulations or legislation would be read as inapplicable to a bank because it would impair the core of banking. But what you want to take away from that for this transition into today's topic is the idea that the key provincial power is 9213, the power over property and civil rights, and that this is an extremely broad power, the scope of which is somewhat limited by the specific powers that are assigned to the federal government. Nevertheless, the property and civil rights power acts as a residual source of jurisdiction, such that if you can't slot a topic into any specific federal power, it will probably fall to the provinces under property and civil rights. One thing that is interesting about this concept of residual power going to the provinces under property and civil rights is that it appears to be inconsistent with how the Constitution is written. And what I'm getting at is when you read the words of Section 91 of the Constitution Act 1867, it states, It shall be lawful for the Queen, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate and House of Commons, that's the lawmaking formula, to make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Canada in relation to all matters not coming within the classes of subjects by this act assigned exclusively to the legislatures of the province. This sets up a framework where it would look like the residual power goes to the federal government. They have this power set out in section 91 
to make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Canada, so long as it is in relation to a subject not assigned to the exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces. This is the formal residual power. Formally, if a power is not elsewhere assigned, it will fall to the federal government under this peace, order, and good governance language of Section 91, of the preamble to Section 91. And this idea that the federal government has a residual power to legislate in relation to the peace, order, and good governance of Canada is known as the POG power, P-O-G-G, a shorthand for peace, order, and good governance. However, Professor Hogg, who's the, who was, I keep forgetting he passed away, who was the leading Canadian constitutional law scholar, ironically enough, um, somebody who was born and raised in New Zealand, but Professor Hogg says, look, it's true that formally the residual power goes to the federal government under this POG power. However, in practice, the property and civil rights power has been interpreted so broadly that it leaves very little residual room. And so if you want to think of a framework, you can think, as a general rule, most everything can fall under property and civil rights unless it is explicitly assigned to the federal government in a specific head of power set out in section 91. There are some extreme examples of things that simply cannot fit under property and civil rights, property and civil rights in the provinces, and these fall under that peace, order, and good governance power. We're not going to get into the fine details of the POG, peace, order, and good governance power in this class, because frankly, it is invoked so rarely, successfully invoked at least, so rarely that it is not a major component of division of powers analysis. It is reserved for three situations. One is where there's a matter that's truly of national concern. It transcends provincial interests and truly is of concern to the nation as a whole. A second branch is a national emergency when there's legislation that's passed truly in response to a temporary national emergency. And finally, there's what's called the gap branch, where there's something that is truly new and was just never considered as part of the distribution of powers and is outside of property and civil rights. I don't want to get too belabored with the issue of the POG power because it's not a central focus of this class or this lecture, but just to give you an example, of what might fall under each of these three branches of the POG power. Under the GAP branch, it's the idea there is some things that are just kind of overlooked in the division of powers. One is that Section 9211 of the Constitution Act 1867 allows provincial jurisdiction over the incorporation of companies with provincial objects. There is no analogous power given to the federal government for the incorporation of companies with federal objects. This is seen as a gap in the division of powers. And so therefore, this falls to the federal government under its peace order and good governance power. Similarly, the power to enter into treaties with foreign nations is not explicitly assigned to the federal government, but that's found to be a gap. The National Concern Branch was used to uphold a law in relation to 
maritime pollution to dumping materials out at sea. This is not within a head of power assigned to the federal legislature, but the court said this is a matter that truly concerns Canada as a whole in light of its international obligations and therefore fell to the federal government. And finally, the national emergency doctrine of POG has been used to allow for legislation that dealt with runaway inflation during a period of economic crisis. But a key part of this national emergency is it must be temporary. So I don't want you to worry about the POG power in its specifics. And frankly, the jurisprudence on the POG power is a bit inconsistent, a bit hard to follow at times, not all that well thought out. And it's beyond the scope of this course or what I would call a reasonable degree of effort to get your head around these constitutional division of powers issues to try to really understand the POG power. It's just not that important. What is important is that you recognize that it's not that important and that you recognize that it's not that important because despite the framing of Section 91 is suggestive that residual powers are going to accrue to the federal government instead because of a broad interpretation of property and civil rights, a broad interpretation of provincial power over property and civil rights, in effect, almost all legislative jurisdiction that is not specifically assigned to the federal government will accrue to the provinces under its property and civil rights power. Professor Hogg has described the breadth of the property and civil rights power. He calls it a compendious description of the entire body of the private law which governs the relationships between subject and subject, as opposed to the law which governs the relationship between the subject and the institutions of government. This should trigger a recollection of the description, the definition of public law at the outset of this course. And I said public law concerns the interaction between the state and the individual, and the state with other state entities. Well, property and civil rights, on the other hand, describes what I call private law. So basically, all private law, the regulation of all private law is going to fall to the provinces, unless you can show a specific exception which pulls it into federal jurisdiction. And again, to reiterate a point that I made uh, in a previous lecture, Civil rights does not mean civil liberties. It's not civil rights in the sense that you think of the civil rights movements that happen throughout the world to uh, deal with injustice in society. Civil rights in this context means effectively private law rights within the country. It means tort and contract. So if you think about Section 92.13, property and civil rights, you think about your law school, subjects. You can kind of think of, okay, property, torts, and contracts are all going to be regulated provincially. Criminal law, as we'll get to, is set nationally. And then constitutional law is the framework through which it all operates. Now, a plain reading of the Constitution Act 1867, sections 91 and 92, wouldn't necessarily have gotten you to the place of thinking that all property, contract, and tort was going to be regulated primarily by the provincial 
legislatures. You would be forgiven for reading the division of powers and seeing the preamble to section 91 and then seeing 91.1 had been repealed and seeing 91.1a, the public debt and property, and then 91.2, the regulation of trade and commerce and thinking, okay, well, most business is going to be regulated by the federal government. And certainly, trade and commerce is a phrase that has been used in constitutional law to justify a wide array of legislation. Specifically, what I'm referring to is in the United States Constitutional Division of Powers, the major source of federal jurisdiction is federal power over interstate trade and commerce. And what the Supreme Court of the United States has found is that so long as a matter affects in a significant way interstate trade and commerce, the federal government can regulate it. This has been include this has been found to include civil liberties regulation of hotels because people use hotels when passing through states to engage in trade and commerce. It's very broad interpretation of the phrase trade and commerce and even interstate trade and commerce that has allowed expansive federal powers in the United States. Trade and commerce without an interprovincial or interstate qualifier could be read really broadly. It has not been, however. Rather, the Section 91.2 trade and commerce power has been interpreted remarkably narrowly. Why? Well, the courts interpreting the division of powers have noticed the tension between provincial exclusive jurisdiction over property and civil rights on the one hand and federal exclusive jurisdiction over trade and commerce on the other hand. If they both have exclusive jurisdiction in relation to these subject matters, and there's such apparent overlap between regulating property rights and civil rights and regulating trade and commerce, the courts have said we're going to have to, in effect, read down one of those powers in a dramatic way. Why would it be the federal government who would lose out in that sort of an analysis? Why would the court have read the federal trade and commerce power narrowly while reading the provincial property and civil rights power expansively? Well, this is where the principle of federalism and the bargain of the Canadian Confederation comes into play. This is where you have to think it would dramatically decrease provincial legislative power that would undo the deal that was made with Quebec to bring it into confederation. The courts decide we are not going to eviscerate provincial power by expansively reading federal power over trade and commerce. This process where you look to other heads of power when interpreting the scope of another head of power has been described as mutual modification. It's the idea that the heads of power need to be read harmoniously and consistent with the principle of federalism, consistent with maintaining that federal and provincial balance, the maintenance of which is essential to keeping the bargain of confederation as between Quebec and the English-speaking provinces. 
mutual modification. We will look at the heads of power as a whole, and we will ensure that in interpreting one head of power, we are leaving enough room for the other heads of power and being consistent with the principle of federalism. That's the idea of mutual modification. It's what leads the trade and commerce power to be interpreted in a very narrow way. It's what also leads the provincial power over property and civil rights, despite being very broadly interpreted, to not include power over banking. That is explicitly given to the federal government, so we will read down the property and civil rights power. However, to leave room for that property and civil rights power, we'll read down the trade and commerce power. You can see how the powers mutually modify each other to allow for a coherent and cohesive division of powers framework that is consistent with the principle of federalism. So where does the trade and commerce power land then? It can't be read out of the Constitution altogether. And the courts have decided it has two components. The regulation of international and interprovincial trade falls under the federal trade and commerce power and general regulation of trade affecting the whole dominion falls under the trade and commerce power. We're going to go over those both in some detail. Now, for the first branch, the international and interprovincial trade and commerce branch, what's important to know about that is it's not sufficient that a law regulates something that merely affects trade and commerce. Rather, the law must purport to directly regulate trade and commerce. This distinction was underscored in a case, not in the readings, but I'll mention it, Carnation Company and Quebec Agricultural Marketing Board. There you had a provincial law that regulated the sale of milk from producers to processors. And this was found to be within Quebec's provincial jurisdiction even though it applied to a sale of milk to a producer who then shipped all of their milk to another province. So this, was, this person was producing milk solely for export and said, okay, I'm making milk solely for export. I ought not to have to comply with this Quebec law. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, this is not an attempt to directly control or restrict interprovincial trade, merely because the nature of your business is to engage in interprovincial or international trade does not mean that it's outside of the scope of provincial powers to regulate that business. Rather, it is only a problem if the provinces were to try to regulate not just your business, but to directly regulate the interprovincial or international component of that business. If they were to say there are special rules that apply only when shipping something outside of the province, that might be a problem. However, simply saying you're subject to the same rules as everybody else, despite the fact you're shipping outside of the province, not a problem. So the leading case on the interpretation of the trade and commerce power, a very early federal provincial division of powers case, is Citizens Insurance and Parsons, an 1881 decision of the Privy Council, so the UK law lords. And what you had there was a man, Mr. Parsons, who took out insurance in Ontario. He had a fire, 
and the insurance company refused to pay. Mr. Parsons sued, saying that the terms of the insurance contract didn't comply with provincial insurance legislation. The insurance company, in response, said that the provincial law was ultra-virus. Ultra-virus, that means outside of the jurisdiction. In other words, unconstitutional, because insurance fell under the federal jurisdiction over trade and commerce. So the issue before the court, before the Privy Council, was how should the apparent overlap between trade and commerce and property and civil rights be resolved? And the Privy Council, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, the UK law lords who used to be the highest court of appeal in the Canadian system, said the solution is to construe trade and commerce somewhat narrowly. Why? Two reasons. One, if it was read literally, Trade and commerce would be very broad. It would include everything from trade with foreign governments down to minute rules for regulating particular industries. And this is the key. It would swallow up provincial jurisdiction almost completely. Another thing that the Privy Council noted, which was interesting, was they said it's a general principle that we ought to assume every word of legislation, and every word of a constitution, has meaning. And if we were to give trade and commerce this really broad meaning, well, then why would there have been these specific powers like banking, bills of exchange and promissory notes, bankruptcy, provided explicitly to the federal government? It doesn't really make sense. So they said in light of those two reasons, we feel comfortable construing trade and commerce narrowly and they said, we're going to decide there's two branches to Section 91.2, Trade and Commerce. The first being international and interprovincial trade, and the second being general regulation of trade affecting the whole dominion. So the first of those concepts is relatively straightforward. It is legislation that is directly in relation to the international or interprovincial aspects of trade. Not every business that engages in international or interprovincial trade, not every component of that business, but merely the activities that are directly involved in international and interprovincial trade. The more complicated one is the general regulation of trade and commerce. And for that, we're going to go back to the GM and city national leasing case that we spoke about briefly when discussing the ancillary powers or necessarily incidental doctrine. And in that case, you had a company, City National Leasing, suing General Motors for engaging in price discrimination, contrary to the Federal Combines Investigation Act, which you'll remember is this legislation dealing with anti-competitive behavior. And if you remember, General Motors argued that the section creating a cause of action was invalid because the creation of civil rights of action is within the exclusive jurisdiction of the provincial governments under the property and civil rights power. And we talked about this ancillary powers doctrine, this idea that if you have one section of a broader statute that is outside of the enacting legislature's jurisdiction, but the statute as a whole is valid, then it is possible to save the section by applying that necessarily incidental doctrine. Well, now we're going to get to the question 
of whether the Combines Investigation Act, the anti-competition legislation as a whole, was indeed valid. If you remember, under that ancillary powers test, one of the questions is, is the act as a whole valid? And so we have to consider what basis the federal government has to regulate anti-competitive behavior in the markets. And you can see how this could be argued to be a matter of property and civil rights. However, City National Leasing, who was suing General Motors, who was relying on the federally created cause of action, said, no, the Combines Investigation Act, now called the Competition Act, is valid federal legislation. It's valid under the trade and commerce power. It's valid under the general trade and commerce branch. So what is this general trade and commerce power? The court decided that it covers a power over trade affecting Canada as a whole. And when will that power be applicable? The court set out a five-factor checklist. So really quickly, here are the five factors, and we'll go into them in a bit more detail. And also we'll go into the nature of this type of a test, factor-based test. The court said, one, is there a general regulatory scheme? Two, does the scheme operate under a regulatory agency? Three, is it concerned with trade in general? Four, could the provinces constitutionally enact the legislation themselves? And five, would failure of a province to enact legislation jeopardize success of the scheme in other parts of the country? Now, you'll recall that we dealt with a factor-based test previously when we talked about Baker. And just as in Baker, you go through these factors, but it's not strictly necessary that all of them be present or supportive of your claim for jurisdiction. These are the factors that the court needs to consider while answering the ultimate question of whether the statute is aimed at trade affecting Canada as a whole. Not having one of these factors is not necessarily fatal. And the court also recognized that there may be other factors that are relevant. So this test provides guidance for assessing whether legislation can fall under the general trade and commerce power, but it doesn't set out a strict formula which must be followed in all circumstances. And when you're thinking about these five indicia, this five-factor checklist. I think it's helpful to think of them in two separate groups. The first three factors are aimed at making sure that the scheme is aimed at regulating trade in general as opposed to regulating a specific industry. For that purpose, you look for a general regulatory scheme, not just a specific provision that deals with something in relation to trade. You look for an agency that's going to regulate that part of the economy. And you ask whether this is concerned with trade in general as opposed to one particular industry or commodity. If you were to pass a federal act seeking to regulate, say, beer, that would not be aimed at regulating the economy as a whole. It would rather be aimed at regulating a specific industry. 
So you want to think that the trade and commerce general power allows these general regulatory schemes that deal with matters affecting the economy as a whole, rather than allowing the federal government to delve in and purport to regulate any particular industry in and of itself. The second half of the analysis, factors four and five, are what's known as the provincial inability test. And this is the question of whether the provinces could accomplish the same goal themselves, whether acting alone or together, and specifically asks the question of whether one province failing to engage in the sort of regulation at issue would jeopardize the success of the scheme as a whole. And what you want to think here is that there are some issues, especially in relation to the economy, where you need everybody to be on board or else the goal is going to be frustrated. We'll see what I'm getting at when we go through the examples. So in applying these five factors to the Combines Investigation Act to dealing with the issue of regulating anti-competitive behavior, the court said, well, yes, the Combines Investigation Act sets out a general scheme of economic regulation. There is a regulator. It's the Director of Investigations and Research, now the Competition Commissioner. And it is concerned with ensuring competition in trade across the country, not in a single trade or commodity, is encouraged. And this is for the overall welfare of the economy. So the first three factors are, are met. This is not seeking to delve in and regulate one specific industry. This is general regulation aimed at a goal helpful to the economy as a whole. And then the court says, well, the provinces acting alone or in concert couldn't accomplish this because competition by its very nature can only be effectively regulated nationally if everybody is on the same page. If, for example, one province were to not prevent anti-competitive behavior, you could have businesses simply moving to that jurisdiction, moving their operations there, and engaging in activities that would undermine the economy as a whole. So the court found that the Combines Investigation Act was valid. And furthermore, as we learned in the previous class, using the ancillary powers doctrine, the court found that the specific provision creating a cause of action was also valid. So the next case that we have on the general trade and power commerce is Kirkby and Ritvik Holdings. This is a Lego case. And incidentally, one of my favorite things about this case is how plain it comes across that the judge who wrote the decision, Justice Louis LaBelle, is a wonderful person, how much he loves Lego. Justice LaBelle starts his judgment. He says, for many years, Kirkby has been a well-known and successful manufacturer of construction sets for children, and at times for their parents too. And you can just imagine him going home and cracking open his Lego bin and just, just getting to work. So anyways, um, the interesting thing about this case, well, this case is interesting in a lot of ways. It's a good case on the general branch of the trade and commerce power. It's also a fascinating intellectual property case where there is a rather clever argument advanced by Lego's counsel to try to get around the expiry of their patent on Lego. 
And I, I'll just explain that part briefly, just because it's interesting and it may help the case stick more clearly in your mind. Clearly, the intellectual property components of this case are not within the scope of our class. But what you had was Lego creates their famous system of interlocking bricks, and they get a patent on that. They get a patent on the design for the Lego product. Now, the deal with patents, though, is that to get a patent, you must disclose how your product works. And then you get the exclusive right to manufacture, sell, and distribute that product for a set period of time, after which your patent expires and everybody can do it. So the deal is basically this. The idea is, look, we will facilitate innovation by giving you this protection, but we will also facilitate people being able to build off others' inventions by making that protection time limited. So if you don't get a patent, then somebody can just copy you and take your invention and run with it. So you want that protection. But we don't want to give a patent forever and then allow only one company to ever manufacture something that's useful. You have to disclose the secret of how you make it, if it's secret, and you have to allow other people to do that after a period of time had expired. Well, the patent on Lego's particular method of interlocking bricks had expired, and so companies started making off-brand Lego. I don't know if you've ever played with Lego. I play with Lego quite a bit with the kids, and you can tell when you have the off-brand pieces. They just are a little bit weird and different, but they still can, can intersect and work with the, with the proper pieces. So Ritvik Holdings makes Mega Blocks. They're probably the biggest off-brand Lego company in the world. And Lego says, I don't like this. Um, our patent has expired, but we want to figure out a way to not let Mega Blocks make these sets that are interchangeable with our Lego and undercut us on price. And what they decided to try was to say, look, these blocks and their particular design is so well known, it has transcended merely being a product design and become a trademark. When you see a square block with six little nubs on top of it, you think Lego. And to allow other companies to make that is not simply to infringe a patent, which is now expired, which is allowed, but that's to infringe our trademark. That's to make people think that they're buying Lego. And trademark is another branch of intellectual property, but it's distinct from patents in that trademarks don't expire. It's not like IBM's right to call its company IBM will only last for 50 years. You can keep your trademarks protected forever. So very clever idea by Lego's lawyers to say, our design has become a trademark and we want to protect that forever and to prevent any company from making something that infringes on our trademarked design. Great idea. It didn't work on the intellectual property front. Uh, the court said you can't trademark a functional design. You're trying to get around the patent. We see what you're doing in effect. But in the course of making that decision, the court dealt with the challenge to whether the Federal Trademarks Act was constitutional or not. And the court said, well, to figure that out, to figure out whether the Trademarks Act is valid federal legislation under the General Trade and Commerce branch, 
we're going to apply the five factors from GM and City National Leasing. So they say, is there a national regulatory scheme? Yes, indeed there is, the Trademarks Act. Is there oversight? Yes, there's a registrar of trademarks who oversees the scheme. Are trademarks concerned with trade as a whole, not any particular business? Absolutely. Any company uh, can have a protected trademark. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. And I think the provincial inability is particularly obvious when you're talking about trademarks. So what would happen if nine out of the 10 provinces protected trademarks and allowed you to register trademarks? Well, in that 10th province, you could see all sorts of mischief of companies going and making fake products, pretending to do business under assumed names from other companies who had acquired goodwill to those names. You need to protect the trademark everywhere for the protection anywhere to be reasonably valuable. So the court found indeed that the Trademarks Act was valid legislation, was valid federal legislation under the general branch of the trade and commerce power. Interestingly, in the Lego case, you also had an application of the ancillary powers doctrine because there is a provision of the Trademarks Act, again, that created a civil cause of action that allows you to sue if someone's infringing your trademark. And that makes sense, right? You can see how a company would want to be able to say, I have a registered trademark, you're infringing it, I want to sue you in order to stop you from infringing that trademark. I don't want to have to go to a regulator and say, oh, they're infringing my trademark over there, go do something about it. I want to be able to take control, start a lawsuit, pursue them, and recover money for the damages I've suffered. But again, remember the creation of a tort, the creation of a civil cause of action is within provincial jurisdiction. So a section of the Trademark Act that creates a tort is in and of itself outside of federal jurisdiction. You need to then apply the ancillary powers test. You need to ask yourself, is this provision itself outside of the enacting legislature's jurisdiction? Yes, it's outside of the federal government's jurisdiction to create torts. Is the act as a whole valid? Yes, we've decided the act as a whole is a valid exercise of the general branch of the trade and commerce power. How severe of an infringement are we talking about? Well, relatively minor. We've already talked about that in relation to the GM and city national leasing case. The creation of a tort is a relatively minor infringement on provincial jurisdiction. Is there a connection between the section and the act as a whole? Yes, absolutely. The creation of a civil cause of action is integrated into the trademarks regime. In light of this minimal level of interference, it's sufficient that I find that the court finds that the creation of a civil cause of action is integrated into the scheme. They say it's well integrated, in fact. Without this, there would be a gap because there would be trademarks without a way for those who hold the trademarks to effectively enforce them. So in, in the Lego case, you have an example of how the general branch of the trade and commerce power can be applied to uphold federal legislation, the Federal Trademarks Act. And you have an example of the application of the ancillary powers doctrine.
So the final case that I'm going to talk about in relation to the general branch of the trade and commerce power is the securities reference. This was a 2011 decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. Again, a reference. So the federal government had decided that it wanted to implement a national securities regulator and had drafted a securities act, which would create a national regime that would regulate all aspects of securities. Securities are effectively shares in corporations. We're thinking stocks, debt instruments, bonds, financial derivatives. And you have to think about 2011, what had just happened, well, the financial crisis, which was caused in large part by these complex financial instruments called derivatives, which had allowed risk to be greatly amplified within the financial system to a point where a string of defaults on mortgages led to a massive economic crisis. And so the Canadian system had always been that securities were regulated on a province-by-province basis under Section 9213, Property and Civil Rights. And this had led to dramatic differences in the quality of securities regulation from province to province. In fact, the province that was famous for having the worst securities regulation was British Columbia. The British Columbia Securities Commission was renowned as being corrupt and ineffective and uh, beholden to a whole bunch of, of shady interests. That's not the case anymore, but that certainly was the case in, in the not-too-distant past. But this is a big deal, the federal government proposing to take over an entire industry, an entire subject, that had always been regulated provincially. It doesn't happen very often that the federal government says, look, I think that this thing the provinces have been regulating themselves since Confederation is something that the federal government has jurisdiction to step in and take over. So they issued a reference question to the Supreme Court of Canada asking if their proposed legislation was constitutional. And the basis upon which they relied was the general branch of the trade and commerce power. And the Supreme Court of Canada summarizes GM and Kirkby, the two cases we just looked at, and said, provided the law is part of a general regulatory scheme aimed at a trade and commerce under oversight of a regulatory agency, it will fall under the federal trade and commerce power if the matter regulated is genuinely national in importance and scope. And then when will a matter be genuinely national in importance and scope? The court said, well, it's not enough that the matter is replicated throughout the country. It's got to be something the provinces could not effectively achieve on their own. So you see the court re-articulating the basic concepts of GM and Kirkby, but as I said, they sort of break them into two categories. Is it genuinely national in importance and scope? And is it something the provinces cannot effectively achieve on their own? So the court goes in and does a analysis of the Securities Act to see if it is constitutional. This is, of course, a validity analysis. And if it's a validity analysis, then you need to apply the pith and substance doctrine. And how do you do that? Well, first you characterize the law and then you classify it, see if it fits into the general branch of the trade and commerce power. 
How do you characterize a law? Well, you look at both its purpose and effects in order to understand the main thrust or dominant purpose of the legislation. And the court looks at the purposes and says, okay, well, section nine of the act effectively says what the purposes are. So that's looking at the intrinsic evidence of the act itself to try to ascertain the purpose and says, the purposes are to provide investor protection, to foster fair, efficient, and competitive capital markets, and to contribute to the integrity and stability of Canada's financial system. And the scheme had a opt-in idea where once enough provinces agreed to opt into the federal regulatory scheme, then it would become mandatory across the country. And so they said, well, the effect is that the jurisdiction that the provinces have over securities under Section 9213 will be duplicated and displaced. So the way you do this pith and substance analysis is eventually you must articulate what is the pith and substance. And they say, in this case, the pith and substance, the main thrust of the act is to regulate all aspects of securities trading in Canada, including the trades and occupations related to securities in each of the provinces. So they're saying you're regulating all aspects. You're regulating the trading of securities, but you're also regulating the people who engage in securities, the traders, the financial advisors, etc., etc. It's all coming under this federal purview under the Securities Act. That's how you characterize the Securities Act in a pith and substance framework. You still have to classify it, determine does it fall under a head of power assigned to the enacting legislature? In this case, does it fall under the federal power over trade and commerce, the general branch of the federal power over trade and commerce? And the court goes through the five indicia from General Motors. And they say, is it part of a regulatory scheme? Yes. Is the scheme under the oversight of a regulatory agency? Yes. Is the law concerned with trade as a whole rather than a particular industry? Well, they say some parts of it that are aimed at regulating securities with a view towards ensuring the stability of the financial markets. Those might relate to trade as a whole. But this goes into all aspects of securities and regulates securities as an industry. So it's not just the idea of securities at its broadest level and setting minimal standards to avoid systemic risk, to avoid the chances that the securities systems will pose a threat to the economy as a whole, but rather it's reaching in and regulating all aspects of the industry of securities trading. And the court said that's not aimed at trade as a whole. That's aimed at a particular industry, securities. Then they go on and say, well, what about the um, province's ability to enact this legislation? And they say, well, yes, the provinces can enact securities legislation. They, they already have. Um, does the absence of a province from the scheme prevent its effective operation? They say, well, yes and no. There are some things in the act that are really aimed at these systemic risks, these fundamental components of the securities industry that if done wrong, can lead to an economic crisis. The types of things that led 
to the financial crisis of 2007. I think I may have said 2009 earlier. I meant 2007. I apologize. But those systemic risks are just a part of what the act regulates. It goes well beyond just aiming at these specific things that pose that risk to the system as a whole, and instead purports to regulate all aspects of securities law, whether or not we're dealing with things that really have anything to do with the economy as a whole or not. And so to the extent you're doing that, you've just overshot the mark. So the court says, this legislation, as you've written it, just goes too far. It's not a limited federal foray into the aspects of securities that have truly become national in character. It is instead an attempted wholesale takeover of what was a provincially regulated industry, and we can't have that type of an upsetting of the federalist balance. So the court says this proposed Securities Act is unconstitutional. It does not satisfy the test. However, they say if you were to come back and have focused on those elements that truly pose a national risk, truly pose a risk to the economy as a whole to set minimal standards on certain elements of securities regulation, we might be willing to entertain that. And this gets at this idea of the courts engaging in a dialogue with the legislature. So the court says, you've gone too far. This isn't right. Go back and do it again. Try again and come back to us. Professor Hogg has suggested that the courts have tended to be quite deferential when the legislature listens to them, tweaks a law, and then comes back. Which is, again, I think getting at a court being concerned about having some restraint and allowing the legislature some room to operate, and perhaps as a bit of a vestige of a parliamentary supremacy type worldview, but leaving that aside. So the court says, go back, try again if you want to focus on the systemic risks, the truly fundamental components that pose a risk to the economy as a whole, but your wholesale takeover will not fly. So that is the end of our readings on the trade and commerce power. The main things I want you to take away from this discussion are you can't think about the trade and commerce power without thinking about the property and civil rights power right from the start, from the Citizens Insurance and Parsons case. It was always recognized a potential conflict between these two, and the conflict has been resolved by reading the trade and commerce power narrowly and reading the property and civil rights power very broadly. Trade and commerce has these two elements, international and interprovincial trade and commerce and general trade and commerce. The international and interprovincial trade and commerce deals with things deals with legislation directly targeting the international or interprovincial elements of trade, not simply the entities who engage in international and interprovincial trade, but simply those parts of their businesses that are specifically interprovincial and international. The general trade and commerce has these two questions. Are you dealing with a general regulatory scheme aimed at the economy on a broad level? And are you proposing something that the provinces couldn't do on their own? These break up into five separate indicia, which you go through to determine if a law can fall within this general trade and commerce power. And again, these are indicia. You don't necessarily have to tag off every single one of them, but the general idea is it has to be something 
that is truly national in scope and it is distinct from the type of regulation that the provinces can simply accomplish on their own. So the next part of this lecture, we will dive into the criminal law power.